Well, every chess player knows that it's imperative to protect the queen at all costs, right? Now, the queen is the only piece that can move in any direction uh, in an unlimited uh, number of spaces. And so it's the best offensive piece you have, and it's also the best defensive piece you have. Uh, with your queen, you can attack your opponent's king, and you can also protect your own king at the same time. But without your queen, the king is essentially defenseless. And so you would never voluntarily, willingly sacrifice your queen because losing the queen ultimately means you're going to lose your king too and you're going to lose the game. Now, let's say freedom from the law and circumcision is like the queen in chess to Paul. And the gospel itself is the king. The, the gospel is... Uh, the gospel of salvation by grace is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and by faith in him alone that we can have eternal life. Uh, freedom from the curse of the law, freedom from the penalty of the law, and the promise of eternal life in heaven. Now, the Judaizers professed faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, so we give them credit for that. They did profess faith in Jesus Christ. But they added to the gospel by insisting that keeping the law and circumcision was also necessary to have saving faith. Now, if Paul agreed with these Judaizers uh, that Christians had to keep the law and they had to keep circumcision in order to be saved, that would be like sacrificing his queen in chess. Because when we sacrifice the freedom that we have from these rituals and we say that they are necessary for salvation, the whole gospel falls because it's no longer the gospel of God's grace alone uh, that we are saved, given as a free gift to us. Uh, it becomes a gospel of performance and works uh, that we have to earn. And so when we say that we have to earn salvation, now the works of Jesus Christ on the cross become meaningless. And so to add works to the gospel is to confuse the gospel and ultimately to lose the gospel. And so that's why Paul defended this gospel of grace apart from works so vehemently. But in order to have the credibility to make the defense of the gospel, he first had to establish his authority to do so. And we've been on the topic of Paul's authority for the past couple of weeks, and we'll continue that theme both this week and next week. So you'll remember when we started Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, Paul immediately asserted that his revelation was from Jesus Christ. So that's a pretty high source of authority, right? You can't do any better than that. And he reiterated the gospel to them, restating it briefly in verses 3 and 4. And then he rebuked the Galatians because they had quickly abandoned and deserted this gospel of grace that Paul had taught them, allowing the Judaizers to turn them away from the gospel of grace into a gospel of works. So that's what was going on. So just think about the context of Galatians again. Uh, Paul preached the gospel, and he established the churches whoops, uh, in this uh, region of Galatia. That's the place on the north there, the northern end of this, uh, this landmass. And that's where he went on his first missionary journey. And so there are a bunch of cities in Galatia, and wherever Paul went preaching this gospel, uh, these Judaizers would follow him. And they followed him relentlessly. They were always trying to add to the gospel of grace that Paul taught. 
And when we think about these Judaizers, let's remember about them. The, the problem with them was not that they rejected the idea that you had to believe in Jesus for salvation. They did not reject that. The problem was that they added to the gospel of grace. They added works to it. And so by requiring the keeping of the law and circumcision, they were actually nullifying, nullifying the gospel of grace, uh, the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone. So Paul was in a battle with these Judaizers for the loyalty and for the trust of these Galatians. Because the gospel was at stake, and so was the souls of these Galatians. Uh, so they would have believed, these Galatians would have believed and followed whoever it was they trusted. And so it was necessary for Paul to be sure uh, that he reestablished with them his credentials, his authority, so that they would believe him. And that's what he's doing in chapters 1 and 2, before he gets into the uh, really uh, uh, fleshing out the gospel in chapters 3 and 4, and then applying the gospel in chapters 5 and 6. So right now we're in the middle of three sermons that we're doing about Paul's authority. Uh, last week, Paul asserted that his authority was better than the Judaizers' authority because it was received by revelation. He received it by Jesus Christ. And Acts 9 tells us a story about how Jesus was on the road to Damascus in Syria, and he was looking to arrest Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem uh, to face justice for their heretical views. And it was then uh, that he saw the risen Lord, knocked off his horse, blinded by him. Uh, and and uh, Jesus says to him, uh, why are you persecuting me, Saul? And Saul says, uh, who are you, Lord? And, and, and Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And, and from that moment on, his life was changed. Uh, so when he met the risen Christ, he received revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, he went down to Arabia, and this is the desert area just south of Damascus, uh, and this is where he was trained by Jesus for three years in preparation for the ministry uh, that he had in front of him. And so Paul, as he asserted, didn't learn the gospel from the apostles in Jerusalem because he didn't go there to learn the, the gospel from those apostles. And he didn't learn it from the churches in Judea. He learned it from God. He learned it from Jesus himself uh, being trained uh, first in Damascus and then being trained in this Arabian wilderness. Uh, so Paul had a better revelation, a better calling, a better commission than these Judaizers. And now this week, we're going to talk about how Paul's authority was recognized by the church, which now makes his authority better than the Judaizers, because his authority is recognized by the church. The Judaizers were not recognized by the church. So that's the second point uh, that Paul is making about his authority. And next week, we'll talk about how Paul proved his authority by having the, uh, the ability to confront uh, Peter, uh, this esteemed apostle, when he was caught in hypocrisy. So this week, let's look at how Paul's authority was recognized by the church, verses 1 and 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking along Titus also. It was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that somehow I might be running or had run in vain." So Paul says he went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Now, he had been in Arabia for three years. Now, there's a bunch of time missing there, right? He had spent that time, 10, 11 years, uh, in the area of Cilicia and Tarsus. Uh, this is his hometown up there in the, uh, 
I guess the upper left corner to you, where, where Tarsus and Cilicia were. Uh, so he had spent about 10 years there, and then he went up to Jerusalem again uh, because of this revelation from the Holy Spirit. And he went up because the unity of the gospel is at stake and the church is at stake. And so he goes up again uh, to talk to these apostles. And so he went up to Jerusalem and he explained the gospel that he was preaching to these esteemed apostles in Jerusalem, not because he wanted to be sure that he was right. He, he wasn't saying, am I preaching the right gospel? But that wasn't it. He was going up there to say that, uh, to show that, that they did agree with him, to show these Judaizers that he was preaching the right gospel, and he knew he was because Jesus revealed it to him, right? So this is not like he was guessing about whether he was right. Of course he was right. He got it from Jesus directly. But he wanted his opponents, these Judaizers, to know uh, that when they challenged the gospel that Paul was preaching, they weren't just challenging the gospel he was preaching, they were challenging the gospel the apostles were preaching as well. So he wants these Judaizers to know that Paul and the apostles in Jerusalem, they're all on the same page, and he has fellowship and solidarity with them. And so then these Judaizers wouldn't be able to discredit Paul, to go around saying he's preaching a heretical gospel, he's a lone ranger, uh, and nobody else is preaching that message. Uh, Paul is eager to say, look, we are preaching the same gospel, we're just preaching it to a different audience. Uh, Paul's calling was to the Gentiles. That doesn't mean that he preached only to the Gentiles. Uh, we know that he preached to Jews. Every city he went into, he went to the Jewish synagogue first. Uh, but it means that he preached in predominantly Gentile areas. He went to the places where the Gentiles were. But even then, he went to the synagogues where the Jews were in those areas first. Uh, and so Paul didn't preach one gospel to the Jews and another gospel to the Gentiles, right? There's only one gospel. And Paul preached the same gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And so he's showing these Judaizers that there is one gospel, that he and the apostles preached the same gospel. And then to prove it, he took to uh, Jerusalem with him Barnabas, and he took Titus with him as well. Now, Barnabas, these Galatians would have known. They would have been very familiar with him because uh, Barnabas went with Paul on his first missionary journey through all those towns in Galatia where this letter was written to. Uh, he was a devoted Christian, but he was a Jew, a Jew, so obviously he was circumcised, right? But now here's Titus, and he's a believing Christian, but as a Greek, He's not circumcised. And so uh, why would Paul bring this uncircumcised Greek with him to Jerusalem? Well, let's read verses 3 to 5, and we'll talk about it. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Yet it was a concern because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. But we did not yield in subjection to them, even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. So I think Paul brings Titus as a clear example that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and not Jesus plus law and circumcision. So if these apostles agreed that Titus didn't need to be circumcised, then the Judaizers would lose all credibility. And I can't overstate uh, what, a, what an important moment this is or was in the life of the church. It was a pivotal moment in the life of the church because here you have Paul on the one hand saying, uh, 
faith or salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone uh, and salvation is not by works it's only through the blood of Jesus there's nothing we can do to earn this salvation it's 100% a gift from God so that's Paul's position on the other side you have these uh, Judaizers who claim salvation by faith in Jesus plus adherence to the law and circumcision you had to do both so they're clinging to their laws and tradition uh, and they have Jesus at the same time so they're mixing the two of these things and so if the apostles demanded that Titus be circumcised it would have been a total game changer right the Judaizers would have been able to discredit Paul wherever he went saying that Paul was teaching this unorthodox heretical uh, gospel and he's a lone ranger out there teaching something that nobody else is teaching and it would have meant that the false uh, gospel of the Judaizers would have received a stamp of approval from the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> I, I'm sure this was a very dramatic moment, although Paul only gives just a little bit of ink to this. Uh, he only says that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. That is a praise the Lord, hallelujah moment, right? This ensures the unity of the church, and you know that all the men in Jerusalem and in Galatia were thrilled to hear this news, right? That they did not have to uh, keep this law of circumcision. So, but just let's consider for a second what might have happened. Like, uh, if the apostles had said, Judaizers, you're right, Paul would not have gone along with that, right? Paul would not have changed the gospel he taught, even if these apostles had disagreed with him, because he knew he was right, because he had this revelation directly from Jesus Christ. Uh, so he was sure of the gospel he taught. Uh, but Tim, uh, Titus is, is this test case to see if he's right. Now, I imagine Titus walking up to Jerusalem saying, are you sure about this, Paul? Are you sure that this is what we ought to do? Because, you know, I'm the guinea pig here, and, and if you're wrong, uh, I'm not so sure I'm really looking to submit to circumcision. Uh, but Titus, thankfully, doesn't have to do that. Uh, but it says a lot about Paul's confidence uh, in what he thought that, that the apostles believed, as well as what he believed, that he was willing to take Titus with him. And it says a lot about Titus's case, uh, faith, too, that he was willing to float himself as kind of a test case. <clears throat> so the apostles, they agree with Paul. Even if they didn't, Paul would not have compelled Titus to be circumcised. They just would have left because allowing Titus to be circumcised would have been like, circum or like sacrificing his queen, right? Sacrificing the queen of the gospel. Now, let's remember that, that Paul did have Timothy circumcised, right? But he doesn't have Titus circumcised. And these are two completely different set of, sets of circumstances. Because of the ministry that Paul had when he was traveling with Timothy, uh, that's a different deal than when, what he was trying to do here with Titus. Here he's trying to show that there is no reason uh, for salvation's sake for, uh, for a, a Gentile to be circumcised. In Timothy's case, he was part Gentile, part Jew, and he, did, he allowed Timothy to be circumcised so as not to offend Jewish sensibilities. But with Titus, it has nothing to do with that. This is the, the salvation issue is at stake here. And that's why he would not compel Titus to be circumcised. So he would have held to that strongly, no matter what. He would never have given that up. That would have been sacrificing the queen and the gospel of grace would have crumbled. But look what might have happened. If he and the apostles didn't agree, there could have been a church split, right? That could have happened. You could have had, on the one hand, Paul preaching this gospel of salvation alone with no law and no circumcision, 
And on the other hand, you might have had a, a split of people who believed that it was Jesus plus works for salvation. And that's why this argument was so pivotal, so important. And it's a big deal then, and it was a big deal today. It's still a big deal, because whenever anyone adds anything to the gospel or subtracts anything from the gospel, they're confusing the way of salvation. Now, Paul was utterly confident uh, that the, the apostles were preaching the same gospel as he was uh, and that he would be vindicated, vindicated. He wasn't concerned about whether he was preaching the right gospel, uh, but he just wanted to show his solidarity with these uh, apostles in Jerusalem so these Judaizers couldn't undercut what Paul was teaching. And that's what these Judaizers were trying to do. Everywhere Paul went, they were right there behind him. So these terms that Paul used in, in verses 4 and 5 are military terms, uh, to spy on, uh, to sneak in, uh, to hold in bondage. Uh, these words all suggest that, that these false teachers had snuck in, infiltrated the church, and, and tried to bring the true Christians under bondage to the law all over again. And Paul said he did not yield to them even for an hour, so not even for a minute, not even for a split second. Uh, Paul would not concede any point to these Judaizers. Nothing. He wouldn't concede anything to them. The gospel is not by works. It's through faith by God's grace so that no one can boast. And to concede the point is to concede the gospel. And Paul knew that, which was why he held on to it so hard. Now think about these gospel uh, preachers, these false gospel preachers, these Judaizers. If salvation is, in, is uh, by faith plus works, then uh, we're talking about our performance. And you know, that is something that, that pervades the church today in some places, and, and it's a Jesus plus kind of faith that we see, not necessarily circumcision, uh, but sometimes it's all about our performance. What have you done to earn your performance? And some people might like a gospel of performance, right? Because then, you know, we can have a checklist and we know what we have to do. Just give me the list and I'll check the list, check, check all the boxes on the checklist and I'll know I'm safe. And then they can look back on their checklist and they can feel all proud about, look, my checklist has, has checks in every single box and, and aren't I great? And doesn't God, isn't God blessed to have me uh, among his followers? And, and doesn't God owe me something, right? Uh, then it's no longer a gospel of grace at all. It's a gospel of performance. It's a gospel of works. It's a gospel that you think you are owed. Now, the gospel message is completely opposite of that. It's offensive to us, and it should be to offensive to anybody with even a smidgen of pride, right? Because the gospel of grace tells us that we are sinners. We are corrupted by sin. Every bit of us is corrupted by sin. We are helpless. We're hopeless. We're completely unable to do anything to earn our salvation, and we need a Savior because we can't save ourselves. And Jesus comes into this predicament of ours and says, don't worry about you having to do anything. I've already done it because I died on the cross for your sins. I've conquered sin and death. All you need to do is trust me for salvation. Now, the pros of a gospel like that are that we can have salvation even though we don't deserve it and we can have eternal life. All we need to do is have faith in Jesus. But the cons of a gospel like that are that we'll never ever be able to take any credit for it, right? It's never will have anything to do with us. 
And we'll only receive this gospel when we, when we recognize that we are wretched sinners with no way out, no contribution, zero can we make towards it. So it's not about us. It's all about Jesus and what he's done for us. And that's why the gospel could not have been invented by men. No one would ever dream up such a plan of salvation, right? Uh, who would ever invent a gospel where we have to admit that we are sinners, excluded from heaven because our sin puts us in a helpless and hopeless condition and a lost state where we have to surrender all of our pride of accomplishment and completely rely on the work of someone else for our salvation? It's a repugnant message, isn't it? Because we have to lay down our pride and we have to acknowledge our helpless condition and we have to, we have to reach up from our dead condition if it was even possible for a dead person to do that, right? Jesus reaches down into the grave and pulls us up out of our dead condition and gives us life again. So this gospel message would never come from the mind of a man. It would have to come from God. And since it comes from God, it has to be correct. And that's why... Paul wouldn't yield anything, even for an hour, to these Judaizers so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So Paul won this argument against these Judaizers in Jerusalem, and so it follows that the Galatians ought to believe that he was correct against these Judaizers uh, when he was writing to them uh, in, in this letter to the Galatians. So it's another point in Paul's column. But these false teachers were relentless, right? They never stopped. They never gave up. Wherever Paul went, whether it was in Jerusalem or Galatia, anywhere else in Asia, in Greece, there these Judaizers were, or they were right behind, following on his heels, trying to impose the law, as Paul said, to spy out the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. So the book of Galatians is all about our liberty, our liberty in Christ, our freedom in Christ. So liberty means freedom from these hopeless attempts to try to keep the law perfectly to please God. It's impossible for us to please the law, or please, <laughs> please God by keeping the law. And when we fail, that failure brings guilt and it brings condemnation, it brings shame and it brings judgment and punishment. And to atone for failure, God instituted a system where we sacrifice unblemished animals to atone for our sins. And when you sinned, you had to bring your animal publicly to the priest. And you had to acknowledge before him that you sinned and you're bringing this animal to him uh, to sacrifice. And, and, and it was like saying, here I am. I failed again and I'm publicly acknowledging it. And here's this sacrifice that you are to offer on my behalf. And this was costly to the sinner as well, both in terms of, of pride, loss of, of, of pride, this shame, plus the cost of the animal. But then Jesus did away with the sacrificial system by fulfilling the law perfectly, uh, which qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that uh, when God looks at him, uh, he can look at him and, and see uh, us covered in his blood rather than seeing us covered in, covered in our sin. He charges our sin to Jesus' account, charges Jesus' righteousness and puts it on our account. And now that the law is fulfilled, we don't have to keep it to be saved. Now we are free to spend all of our energy, direct all of our attention to loving God without fear of the curse and penalty and the penalty of, of not being able to keep the law perfectly. Now, this freedom that we have is not a license to sin. Uh, God still wants us to act in accordance with his moral law. And that's why uh, we obey God's moral law, even though we don't do it 
to be saved. We do it because we want to act in the nature and character of God. And we have the peace of knowing that if we sin, well, Jesus has already paid the price for that sin. So we're free from the law's bondage. We're free from performance. We're free from the penalty of failing to keep the law perfectly. And we're free to love and to serve God with a heart of gratitude. Well, this is the stand that Paul took. He took a very strong stand, the strongest stand, in fact, not yielding even anything to his opponents because to lose freedom from the law and circumcision was to lose the gospel. And he knew that if Paul lost the queen that he was defending here, he'd lose the match. And so we Christians need to take a lesson from Paul. When we're faced with this problem of of choosing between compromising the gospel and persecution, which is sure to follow, Well, may we choose the persecution every time. And when we have to decide between doing what's popular to gain the approval of the masses uh, versus uh, just blending in uh, on the one hand and then standing alone against the masses for what is right, well, may we stand alone every time like Paul was going to do. Uh, Paul stood against the Judaizers, and even if Peter, James, and John uh, took the Judaizers' side, Paul would have continued to stand alone against them all. But thankfully... That wasn't necessary. There was only one gospel. There is only one gospel. And Peter, James, and John knew that too. So let's look at how Paul was accepted by them in verses 6 to 10. Uh, But from those who are of considerable repute, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. Well, those who are of repute contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, For he who was at work for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised was at work for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do." Paul needs a grammar check, doesn't he? Somebody to uh, notice a run-on sentence and say, Paul, you might want to break that up here. Uh, It's hard to read four verses uh, when it's all just commas. But his point is well made, right? Uh, Paul summarized this meeting to uh, the Galatians about uh, his time in Jerusalem. And he said that his gospel was authentic and his credentials were authentic, and they were not changed by what the apostles, by his meeting with the apostles in Jerusalem, one bit. So Paul received his gospel, he received his calling, he received his commission, and thus he received his authority directly from Jesus Christ. And so these apostles didn't add anything new to Paul's gospel. It was the same gospel. And Paul didn't add anything new to theirs either, right? Because there's only one gospel. Uh, It's just that God gave them different mission fields to preach it on. So Jesus called Paul to preach to the Gentiles, to predominantly in Gentile lands, whereas God called Peter and James and John uh, to preach to the Jews in Jewish lands. So the same God commissioned them both to preach the same message, but to different audiences. And so these uh, apostles in Jerusalem, they recognized the grace that had been given to Paul by God not only in his salvation, but his ministry also. Uh, So by now, Paul had been preaching the gospel for more than a decade, and he probably made hundreds, if not thousands, of converts by this point in time. So the apostles had to recognize uh, uh, God's hand in Paul's life through his testimony, uh, the change in his life, and the fruit of his ministry. And so these apostles offer to Paul the right hand of fellowship. 
which is a military term. And it's meant uh, to, when it's used when people agreed on treaties, uh, when hostilities were ended as a pledge or as a promise. And so if there ever were any hostilities, uh, well, they were ended as Paul and James and Peter and John agreed on the gospel, and they each agreed that they had a unique calling, Paul to the Gentiles and the others to the Jews. The only thing that they encouraged Paul to do was to remember the poor. Now, Paul didn't need any encouragement to do that, right? This was right in Paul's wheelhouse. He loved to remember the poor. Uh, in fact, this visit to Jerusalem probably corresponds with the visit to Jerusalem uh, recorded in Acts chapter 11, where Paul bought a gift with him uh, for the famine, uh, for the poor and the hungry in Jerusalem. And later in his ministry, uh, there are other times where Paul took up a collection in one place and brought it to the poor in other places. So let's recap where we are now, speaking about Paul's authority, what he's accomplished so far. Uh, Paul was trying to prove his own authority uh, to the Judaizers uh, and to the Galatians that his authority was better than that of the Judaizers from his own experience. So he received direct revelation from Jesus Christ, whereas the Jews, the Judaizers, they invented this mixture of, of Jesus plus law and circumcision. Paul was trained by Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, for a period of three years, but the Judaizers were trained by those that went before them, uh, their own traditions, and so they came up with this gospel of law plus uh, Jesus Christ. Paul preached the true and accurate gospel, and that's why uh, Titus was not forced to be circumcised. The apostles did not ask him to be circumcised, and so Paul received the right hand of fellowship, whereas these false teachers did not. So as I said last week, if we are comparing resumes, uh, Paul's on the one hand and the Judaizers on the other hand, uh, it's no contest so far, right? Paul has checked every box uh, and he has uh, proven that his authority is way better than the Judaizers. But if this weren't enough, he's got one more point to make about uh, his rebuke of Peter, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, but for now, I just want to close with some applications. And the first one is this, and you might have guessed, it's protect the queen, right? So if you'll allow me uh, to continue this metaphor, uh, we, cannot, uh, we cannot surrender any of the essentials of Christianity or the gospel will be lost. Jesus was God. Jesus is God, born of a virgin. He took on the form of a man, was 100% God, 100% man, lived a sinless life, uh, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and is coming again. Now, these are the queens, if you will, the essentials of Christianity that we must maintain or else we have lost Christianity. If we allow any of these to be subtracted from the gospel, well, we have lost the gospel. The gospel falls. And if we add anything to them, like the Judaizers were trying to add to them, uh, then the gospel message falls too. So we cannot allow the essentials of Christianity to be taken from us. If we lose the queen, we can kiss the king, uh, the gospel of salvation by grace. We can kiss that goodbye. Now, we can afford to disagree where pawns are at stake, right? Uh, the gospel is not lost if we meet a Christian who has different views on, say, end times, or the role of women in church, or how often we ought to celebrate the Lord's table, or worship styles, or appropriate dress, or parenting, or divorce, or remarriage, or rock and roll, or R-rated movies, right? We don't have to agree on all of these points. That's okay. That's not to say these issues aren't important. Some of them are important, but they're not the queen. We're surrendering them leads to losing the gospel itself. 
And so it's important to know the difference between the queens and the pawns, right? If we lose a pawn, it doesn't cost us the game. But too many times, uh, the arguments in Christianity are over the pawns of the faith. Uh, when Christians fight about non-essentials on social media, or when churches split over the pawns of the faith, I'm sure that God grieves. Uh, these people are modern-day Judaizers. They go into a church, they infiltrate it, sowing discord in the church and destroying the simple gospel message by either adding to it or subtracting from it. So we need to know the essentials, and we need to fight where we must, but we need to accept others where we can when it's related to the pawns of the faith. So protect the queen. Secondly, fulfill God's calling. Uh, Paul was not intimidated by these apostles in Jerusalem at all, uh, but he didn't put himself above them either, right? They had a call and commission from God, and so did he. And everyone's call and commission from God, if it really is from God, is equally valid and equally important. So we shouldn't spend any of our time envying somebody else's ministry, uh, nor should we spend any, other time, any of our time looking down on somebody else's ministry. And I think that's a real danger for us today, to, to be envious of what somebody else has done uh, or to look down on what somebody else has done. And both of these are pride, human pride, uh, where we think too little of ourselves or we think too much of ourselves. And Jesus said that's not the definition of pride. The definition of pride is, is not thinking too much of yourself, but, but it's thinking of yourself too much. So stop thinking about yourself so much. Uh, start thinking about other people's. Fulfill your own calling. Uh, God gave Peter and Paul different people to preach to, and he called you and he called me to different ministries. You all have a ministry, and I have a ministry, and all we can do is be faithful with the ministry that God has given to us. Uh, it may be a hard ministry, like Paul's was. We may un uh, encounter massive opposition and obstacles like Paul did. But whatever ministry God has given you and what he's, uh, whatever he's given me, if we obey God, if we're faithful to our calling, if we stand firm in the face of pressure and uphold the gospel, God will be pleased. And the last one is this, remember the poor. James and Peter and John were preaching to the choir when they were preaching to Paul about remembering the poor. Uh, the poor were already a significant part of Paul's ministry. And I know I'm preaching to the choir too when I say, remember the poor. Uh, we have so many ministries to the poor and the needy in our church that I don't know if I can count them all. Uh, but these are what we're called to do because they are a reflection of God's love to us and how God's love for us overflows out of us and then spills on to other people. Uh, Christians give generously to the poor. That's what Christians do. And we're not saved by our generosity, right? The gospel is Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. Nothing more, nothing less. Don't add, don't subtract. But our generosity reflects our gratitude to a very generous God, so generous, in fact, that he gave his one and only son so that we might have life. So let's reflect the love that God showed us to the world that so desperately needs it from us. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you. We just thank you for your generosity to us, Lord, that you did give your son for us so that we might live. And Lord, you also gave us your word. And uh, Lord, there are people who want to distort the word, who want to change the word, uh, who want to say, yeah, but about the word, Lord. And, and may we never allow that to happen. Uh, Lord, we, we love the word and we uphold it. We protect it. And Lord, just give us the courage when we encounter opposition to it, Lord, that we will always say, no, that's not what God says. This is what God says. This is the gospel message, and this is what we hold to. 
Lord, uh, give us the courage, and we thank you for what you'll do in us and through us, Lord, as we try to reach the people of the world who desperately need to hear this gospel message, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.